Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives when his disciples came to him and asked him, what will be the sign of your coming? And instead of a date or an exact checklist, Jesus gave them a description of the future that was to come. He gave them warnings to heed about the temptations his people would face, and he gave them examples to follow to teach them how they should wait. He taught them that the Son of Man will arrive unexpectedly, that he will return in surprising glory at a time that nobody is able to predict. Like a servant who doesn't know when his master will be back to check on him, like a sheep who doesn't know when the shepherd will return, Jesus told his disciples that we can't prepare for him to return at a certain time. Instead, he instructed them to be ready for his return at all times. Our Savior made a promise. The dawn is coming. And our teacher gave us a warning. Are you ready? Well, good morning to you all. Uh, I just would like, if we could, just to begin our time in prayer uh, for the church in Florida. Uh, they're having to deal with a lot of loss, and, uh, and they're comforting people that are struggling. So I'd just like to begin our time praying for them, uh, and then we'll get into our service sermon here. So God, I um, recognize that these things with uh, events that happen on this, on this earth that are from natural disasters to other things that happen, um, they have its impact on people. And it can often affect lives in such a way for the long term that either embitters them or causes them to go in better directions. And so, Lord, I ask that as your church worships today down there, um, maybe even at a place where it's like they're having to go out into the outdoors to do so because they don't have roofs over the church buildings or, or they're going among the people. I pray that the power of your spirit that is not held in by structures uh, will be experienced and felt by all those who are in need of hope in such a season. For the families, many of them, over 70, have lost somebody they love I ask God uh, that there would be people placed in each of their lives uh, that would uh, be able to offer the grace of Christ. And so as we gather now uh, where we are, you know, certainly in a, in a beautiful place here in central PA, I ask God that your presence would be among us, you would teach us, and that our hearts would not be so callous that we wouldn't receive anew that which comes from your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name is Tony, and I'm pastor here at LEFC, and you've already heard Alex sharing that we're in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and, and this is a particular sharing of Jesus having come into Jerusalem. This is his final week before leading up to the cross. So he's already done his triumphal entry. He has uh, also met with uh, the, the leaders of, his, of this day that were religious leaders. He's cleared the temple courts. And as he's leaving Jerusalem, he climbs the Mount of Olives. And he gets to the top of that, that hill, takes a break, and looks back. And that's where the disciples ask some questions to try to understand what is going to happen to this city known as Jerusalem that is in the, the apple of the eye of God? 
And so in this, we know it now as the Olivet Discourse, Mount of Olives, from where Jesus shares this. And in the book of Luke, it's in chapter 21. In the book of Matthew, it's chapters 24 and 25, where we're teaching from. And the motive in this is this, is a, this, this whole series was spurred on by a question that the disciples actually asked that I'm hearing being asked now is, what are we to think of the times? Are we, is Christ's return soon? Is it later? And if, if it's soon and we should be expecting it any time, then how should we prepare? And so over the last few weeks, we've looked at uh, the question you know, from Matthew chapter 25, the first few verses we're talking about, we're to be always prepared for the groom coming for his bride. Always prepared. So we have to be ready always. And then asking good questions along the way to understand so that we can interpret well the times and discern the times. And then last week, as, as Tom shared, that there are going to be deceivers that will come. But in order to be able to stay stand the truth, we have to be well-versed in our scriptures, studying, but not only studying them, but living them. And so that will help us uh, be able to prevail through deceptive teaching. And then today, we're going to look at, we need to change our perception on how we look at suffering and hardship in our lives. Because if we can change that, it may prepare us for what is yet to come. And so having said that, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 24 and 25. If you do not have a Bible, uh, our ushers are coming down the aisle now. We also have all these scriptures on the YouVersion app. It's a Bible app. If you go into the events tab, tap on events, uh, you'll see LEFC there. Just tap on that and you'll get all the scriptures we're going to be using today. So before we get into what is going to be Matthew 24, verses 9 to 13, I'm going to bring a particular theological challenge or issue that is rooted or related to the text today. The first Sunday of this series, we, were, we read a text in 1 Thessalonians 5 that talks about, describes and, and gives a sense of what the experience will be like when Christ returns. But in that passage, in verse 9, there is a theological debate that rises up out of this verse. And the verse is this. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but rather to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read it again. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this message is being spoken to those who are part of the church, part of the family of God, and so you have to receive it through that lens. And, and also it's speaking to wrath versus salvation. And salvation is being spared wrath. And so you have to see it through that lens. So what is not said here is that Christians will not suffer. It does not say that, nor does it say they won't ever experience wrath. What it does say is that we as Christians are not appointed to suffer the wrath of God. And that is a big difference between experiencing suffering or hardship or wrath of man. So our appointment is to experience life eternal with God. Now, why do I say this is a theological challenge? Well, there are some movements within the body of Christ, they are the church, that will say Christians should not or do not suffer. And if they are suffering, it's because of either demonic uh, attack or because there's hidden sin. 
And so they would say that any kind of suffering that is happening for the church was not appointed. And therefore, you've got to figure out, okay, so did you sin? Or is it some kind of demonic attack? Now, is it possible for hardship and suffering, sickness or whatever, to happen as the result of sin? Yes. Is it possible that some of those things could also be the result of demonic activity? Yes. It's also true that everything broken in the world is the result of sin. All right? That is a fair statement. But to say and take this text as saying that we will not suffer as the church, and if you do, then there is something wrong with you or, or we're under attack from Satan. May be true, but that's not what that text is saying. And it's actually speaking to salvation. For those who have salvation, you are not appointed to wrath, the wrath of God, the eternal punishment that comes for those who do not accept Jesus Christ. That's what the context of that verse is saying. So I mention this because depending on what you've been taught over the years, you need to know that there is a pushback on that view, that is, and it's an appropriate pushback to say that Christians don't suffer. And if you do, it's because something else is going on. So having said that, it helps us then better interpret what we're going to read today. And, and the main text today is in verses 9 to 13 of Matthew 24. But I'm going to begin with verse 4 to give a little context. So verse 4, Jesus speaking. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So we have in this text that basically Jesus is saying Christians will suffer the wrath of man. It will happen. In fact, it describes in verse 9 that you will be handed over to authorities. So government powers will be against the movement of Christ among people. And, and that they will be handed over by some. And we're going to discover through today's text that some of that handing over is actually going to be from people from within. But we, we see in verse 9 very clearly here, handed over to authorities, so they'll be there. But at the end of verse 9, it speaks to that all nations will hate you because of him. All right? So now, let me ask this question. Because of who Jesus is, is hyperbole something needed for him to make a point? No. As, a, as somebody that grew up in this culture, we use words like never, always, and, you know, other things that are statements that are absolute and extreme to make a point. And it's not usually never or always, but it's a lot, right? In this case, Jesus is saying 
that, you know, you'll be handed over to the authorities and you will be hated by all nations. So is Jesus saying you'll be hated by most nations? Is there a hyperbole there? Is, it, is he saying something extreme to make a point? Or is he saying, no, there will be a day where even all nations will speak and uh, hate of you and will be against you because of Jesus. If you know anything about all the Bible talks about within eschatology, which is the study of end times, you see that there's really not a statement of any nation standing against the evil one. It's, it's the people of God, the people of God that are the ones standing against it, not nations. In fact, it talks about nations making alliances with the Antichrist. And so you really don't get much confidence about nations. And why am I driving this point home? Because many today are more concerned that we be a Christian nation, which I am all about, and I even vote to that end and speak to that end, but in the end of the day, Jesus says, even your nation, the one we are in, where our constitution was written by many who are followers of Christ, who even put within that constitution defense of worshiping together and the freedom to go to the word of God and teach it freely, that yes, even this nation will begin to hate those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Do we not see a little bit of hints of that now? I mean, I'll be honest. I, you know, I've been in ministry full-time since 1993. The first 12 to 15 years of that ministry, I didn't hear of churches hiring attorneys to look over their statements of faith to make sure it's clear enough so that we can defend ourselves in the courts of law in our country. But in the last 15 years, that's a constant. We're regularly filtering through to make sure that what we believe is stated accurately because our country isn't so consistent in being able to embrace and say, we love the church of God. When was the last time you heard a statement come from a leader within our country of influence say, we love the church, we want the church, and, the, and, and there's a resounding applause in the chambers of Congress? I haven't seen it. Now, we might make cases that different ones will partner with the church. But the reality is, our nation isn't a righteous nation. We have sin within our midst, just like any other. And Jesus says, all nations will eventually come against you because of Jesus. Not because of you, but because of Jesus in you. And it says that, that in, and again, as I told you earlier, the Olivet Discourse, this message was spoken uh, up on the hill, and we have the Matthew account, but we also have the Luke account. And in Luke chapter 21, when he's talking about you're going to be given over to authorities, Luke specifically goes into who is turning you into those authorities. Here's verse 16 of Luke 21, and I'm reading it verbatim. I am not adding anything to it. It says, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, and sisters, relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. That's, I mean, that's pretty much drawing it complete. Is there anybody else that we would see as an ally than our parents or our siblings or other extended relatives or friends 
And it says that even among that group, some of them will pursue death on your behalf. So what will it take in society that people of your own family will be so desperate to come against you that they would have you put to death? Well, that suggests that there's something going on in culture that says that for the sake of their own lives and for the sake of their own conscience, they come against you and are even willing to make sure there is death. You see, I think there is coming a day, and it is already happening in some countries. It's just not happening so prevalently here. That as people begin to distance themselves from orthodoxy of Scripture, as they leave the faith, and as they leave the church that they maybe were taught in and grew up in, and they begin to hold on to values that are taught within society, They know all the truths that are in there and they're grasping something new. What do you think is going on inside? It's a turmoil. And there's conviction that's even rooted in that. And when somebody is under that kind of internal conviction, the natural instinct is to blame or to come against or to become angry about it. I've had people say that they couldn't come to me because I would be judging of them. Meanwhile, I hardly ever, in the way I interact with people, talk about, so where are you sinning this week? Or I see this sin in you. It's not even my approach. But yet people will come saying they feel judgment. Why is that so? It's because when somebody is living for the truth, and it's not just because I'm a pastor. I think this is true of many of us here in this room. That as people come near us and we're living our lives in pursuit of holiness because we want to become more like Jesus, people feel threatened by that. You might not speak anything of judgment to them, but they feel threatened by your life. And then they, in their mind, they begin to project upon you that you're being judgmental when you've said nothing judgmental towards them. But as this betrayal becomes deeper and deeper, and the, and the separation between those who would defy the idea of what, what is the, authority, the authoritative word of God, there is going to become more animosity between those who depart and those who stay. So you can see that when Jesus says there will even be parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends that will put some of you to death. When you hear that, then it doesn't seem so strange that nations will come against us. All of them. Verse 10. Let's look at what it says. It says, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Again, as they leave and depart, there's going to be betrayal. I mean, think about what happened with Judas and Jesus. Judas was a chosen member of the 12, the inner circle. And he betrayed Jesus. He betrayed him because there were other values, competing values going on inside him. I mean, never fully grasped. So to think if Jesus can have one of his 12 depart from the group and even go to the point of betraying him to death. Why should we not expect the same from among us? We don't carry the same level of authority Jesus does, although he gives us that authority. But let's admit, the powerful presence of the authority of Jesus had to be astounding to people. 
And yet Judas, having seen all that Jesus was able to do and speaking to the waters and controlling the waters and controlling the, the earth and seeing people come back from the grave, all at the very words of Jesus, even Judas was still able to come to a place and say, I defy you. I defy you. And it roots itself in anger. And he became tortured as we see how he ended his life. So in verse 10, what I believe happens is that there becomes a dividing of the church. When the church comes under pressure, when the church is being pressed from all sides, those who are fully not invested in Jesus will begin to depart. And some of them will not depart quietly. When pressure was coming in on Jesus and things were becoming pretty dire, Judas left. The same will be happening with the church as the church continues to get arrows from all different directions where now you came into a church with the term, with the title evangelical on it. And evangelical is being considered a hate group now by many in our country. Just because we stand on certain values that are different from what the world says and calls it hate. So the true believer is starting to feel betrayal, even from some who are still part of the church, but would disagree with some of the statements of the church and orthodoxy. And they start to blame from within. But the true believer will experience betrayal as people begin to depart. So what are the issues? I mean, we know sexuality and gender issues have begun to divide the church. Those who hold to the orthodox background of what the scripture says about all those things because there's many different forms of sexuality and gender challenges that are talked about and addressed in scripture with absolute clarity and things have become unclear by the, the matter of the way the world teaches it. The church, the true church will continue to stay strong and help people find clarity in the mix of all the confusion. But you're seeing churches begin to divide over this issue. What's another one? Here's what I'm beginning to see on the horizon. I'm starting to hear pastors challenge the idea of the exclusivity of Christ. The church is dividing. And you're hearing it. Where they're beginning to say, you know, I believe that Jesus has provided a way between me and God. And they, they affirm another person who might pursue some other form of finding peace with God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But churches are beginning to doubt this. Because as soon as you start changing the, the guidelines of what is moral and not moral, you have to start saying, well, maybe this isn't the authoritative word of God. And maybe we need to start looking at that it's through consensus, God kind of guides the masses to that place of deciding what is true. But since when do we see that the masses get things right? The Old Testament is regularly, and God loves the nation of Israel, but Israel in mass kept making the wrong decision over and over again. The other things we're beginning to see is people are beginning to challenge the unchanging nature of God. Others are saying, well, maybe the sovereignty of God isn't what we thought it to be. Because it certainly seems like he's not invested right now. 
These are the things that are beginning to divide the church. And when there's a division, there's usually a new gathering. A new gathering of the false church. In the book of Revelation, it talks about this prostitute. Many have interpreted that that prostitute that's being spoken of, that's going to be this harlot that, 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 that Satan uses to deceive many, that many think it is actually a description of the false apostate church. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. There's argument to that end. But what we do know with absolute clarity is that Paul said to Timothy, there will be a new gathering of a new church. And it's going to be the gathering of the itching ears. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 3 says this. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Again, I think this is, applies to the nature of it. So if you're going to withdraw from church, but you saw the beauty of church for its community and how they care for one another, you still want to be drawn to it. And you're also not liking the fact that you're feeling conviction and you're feeling like that, that you're being uh, set out and apart from the church because you're now in disagreement with the church. So you're, you're grasping for things. And so let's create a new gathering and then we can find, oh, there are some teachers that teach the way I think. Has nothing to do with the word of God. It's the way I think. So they gather around them. And that's why we've seen so many of our young people who grew up in the church that we've invested in, we loved on, we've taught the truths to. And they get out and they get fed all these ideas from the rest of the world and they never really rooted themselves in Christ. And they begin by following after heresies or ideas that say they're religious and God-affirming, but it doesn't line up with the Word of God. So they start there, and they start listening to podcasts that misguide them in those ways. And the next thing you know, initially it was kind of just like, well, I disagree with you. Then they become angry towards you. You see, they start looking and saying, you know, I don't feel good about myself because they've been teaching things that, I, that actually the world says, no, those things are fine. So they start pointing back at the church with venom. Says, well, you know, people will begin to hate you because of me. What do they attack? They start attacking the church for what it actually is. It's a gathering of sinners. We're a gathering of sinners. Just a couple weeks ago, I had somebody yell at me, and I'm not kidding, yell at me to say, your church is full of hypocrites. And I'm like, mm, yes. <laughs> it's true. Because we all recognize there are things that are going on that we want to do. I mean, Paul talks about that in Romans. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. He acknowledges there is a tension inside, but we keep working towards God transforming us. As the church begins to separate, and there's a false church and, a, and, a, and, a, and then the true church. Uh, by the way, and Jesus speaks several parables to it. Sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. These things are spoken of. It's not withheld from us, we know. But he says in verse 12 that even within the church, the true church, 
because of the pressures of all that's going on. In verse 12 it says, because of the increase of wickedness, I'm sure the church is going to get discouraged and more discouraged by the wickedness that is going around us that the love of most of us will end up growing cold. And here's the tragedy of that. That as true believers, love grow cold as what even God confronts in the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. That by our hearts growing lukewarm, that we're no longer truly uh, grasping at our relationship with God as a first love. That it says that this cooling of hearts is such that the enemies made a vast majority of the church ineffective. And no threat to their work. If they can't have us, if the demons can't have us because we are God's possession, we're God's children, then the best thing they can do is make things so difficult and so wicked around us that it'll cause our hearts to grow cold. And then we're at least out of the game, if you will. We're no longer a threat to them. They can't have us, but they certainly don't want God using us to reach anybody else. Again, as things increase around us, evil increases, fewer and fewer people will be hot and on fire for God because it comes at a cost. Verse 13 says, (laughs) this is crazy to me, but it says, those who stand firm to the end will be saved. Which leads to a natural question that I would like to ask and then go to another text for The question is this, how does somebody gain the strength to stand firm to the end? Because I think that's a really important thing. If if you're hearing all of this and saying, yeah, you're going to be turned over by even some of your people closest to you, that the church is going to begin to divide from false believers to true believers. And then a statement at the end saying, those who stand firm to the end will be saved. Then the natural thing we should be asking ourselves, how do we get there? How do we get there that we stand firm to the end? So I want us to turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. It's towards the end of the scriptures there. If you find James, go left. Find Timothy, go right. Hebrews chapter 12. Let me begin by starting in verse 4. It says, In your struggle against sin... You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. And you have complete, and you have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chases everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness." No discipline seems pleasant at that time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. 
What I believe this text ultimately is saying is we grow most in our faith through hardship. We grow most in our faith through hardship. He begins with an analogy about the father-son relationship where basically if a father truly loves their kid, they're going to discipline them. They're going to correct them because they know if they don't, that child will grow up to be an adult that is out of control and incapable of working with others. So you discipline them. And yes, it doesn't feel good. I mean, think about it. Whenever you as a parent have ever disciplined a child, and during that discipline, have you ever heard a child say, I love you. Thank you for showing me how much you love me today. Please keep going. Because I know I will be better for it. No, none of us feel that way. But yet, in spite of knowing that in that moment, that more often than not, the child is angry at their parent for the discipline, frustrated by their parent, and might even be saying, like, they hate you, and that you don't love them, and they don't love you. You've got to keep going as a parent because you know you have to love them beyond the disagreement of the moment. That's what God does when it comes to hardship. So we have to put, look at the difficulties of life, the sufferings and hardship of life through the lens of like a father-son relationship. That when we go through things of suffering, and these things aren't necessarily the root of spiritual things. It can be simply tragedy or difficult hardships or sickness of some kind. But we go through those things and we see it as an opportunity to grow in our faith. So we, we need to look at these hardships through a different lens. And so as a result, the crucible of suffering and hardship teaches us how to rely upon God more and more. Consider the life of Joseph. And in his situation, his brothers uh, beat him, sold him into slavery, and then lied to his father about his death. And it did, he didn't die, but he said he had died. And then he gets sold into slavery. And then while in slavery, he gets, uh, he gets lied about. He gets, uh, there's unloyalty. He gets thrown into prison uh, unjustly. I mean, all these things are happening over the years. If I was Joseph, I would be looking at, God does not love me. For years, everything got worse, even though he was acting righteously. But then in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says to his brothers, now that things are different, he's now in charge of Egypt under Pharaoh. His brothers come to him and he says, what you intended for evil, because what they did as brothers to him was evil. What you intended for evil, God brought about a greater good. And that greater good was salvation for those very brothers. Being saved and spared from a, a severe drought. That's what God does. There's much evil that happens on this earth because of the brokenness of man. But in spite of that, God uses what happens from that evil and brings about greater strength in all of us. Joseph became a very strong leader because of what he had suffered and how he had trusted God through it. Does that not also produce the same in us? I mean, in verse 11, it says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. I mean, Joseph is looking back like, this was horrific, horrific what he went through. It did not seem pleasant. And he had every right to think 
God had abandoned him. But he kept honoring God. And God kept strengthening him through the adversity. But then it says, later on, however, in verse 11, when we go through that adversity, that discipline, we, it then produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So something about going through difficult things in life, adverse things in life, makes us stronger so that we can be trained by it and be able to sustain through greater storms. When I look at my own life in that, I can say that when two friends of mine were killed in two different car accidents in the same week, it caused me to go into a season of depression where I was like struggling with the fact that I had the opportunity to speak about God to the one who died second and to a group of people, and I didn't. And I struggled with the guilt of that. But then I was also struggling with the fact that I was ashamed of the gospel. That was what my issue was. And I also was beginning to learn that I was the Lord of my life. Jesus wasn't. I knew Jesus as my Savior, but I did not acknowledge him or let him be Lord of my life. I still had the reins. God used the death of two friends in my life to cause me to see I need God leading my life, not me. My friends did not die so that God could teach me that. Let's separate that. But God used their death to teach me what I needed to learn in my life. In the same way, five years ago now, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. One of the hardest things of my life. But we both talk about this fact. While we would not want to go through that ever again, we're grateful for it. Our marriage is stronger. We learn to communicate differently. And our ability to minister to people that are going through similar things has grown. It was painful at the time, but it produced something in us that we needed. My parents were in a severe car accident a few months ago. I'm having a lunch appointment with somebody. And you get this phone call from a hospital saying, you need to come now. You need to come now. Not sure. You drive five hours with that being your word. Imagine what goes through your heart and mind. But God taught me in that, again, a renewal of this. Life is not a given. Each day could be the last. So what do you want the Lord to find you doing when your last breath is being drawn? God taught me in that. But he also taught me something else as I've observed God's grace in their lives. It is not good to go through suffering and hardship and adversity isolated from the church. I've watched the grace they've experienced through the blessing and the generosity and care of the church. And so it makes me grieve when I see people going through hardship and they are on the periphery of the church. We, get, we learn such things through adversity. It's also been said that leaders had a difficult time through COVID. They learned they were, things were pretty harsh on leaders. Pastors have retired and left ministry at the fastest pace in history. Leaders are leaving positions of authority regularly because it's become a toxic environment for leaders. 
But you know what? As God's taught me through some of those things, there are things I still need to keep growing in as a leader. And if things were always easy and good, I would begin to coast. I need adversity to teach me. Now, that's not an invitation for you guys to start giving me adversity this week. Just be clear. But this next statement I find is true. So if he says in verse 13 of Matthew 24 that those who stand firm to the end will be saved, what I see in this is the person who stands firm to the end is not the person who is incubated and sheltered from suffering and hardship and adversity. But rather, it's a church that has grown strength in its knees and ankles and heart through walking through things of difficulty to the glory of God. It's them that find strength. And so this statement is something that I penned this past week. It says, standing firm through the storms of the future will come from the strength gained from standing in the storms of the past. The storms of the past strengthen our knees for the future. So if you are going through something very difficult right now, it might feel like God's very distant from you. You might even have had thoughts that says, God must hate you because you're going through something so difficult. But if you look here, it says that if we're supposed to associate hardship with discipline, it says that the one who has not experienced hardship is basically an illegitimate child. Their father must not love them. But God does love us, and he wants us to grow in strength. So by experiencing these storms and then anticipating bigger storms to come, we can experience peace, not panic. Righteousness, not deception. And joy, not resentment. Because joy and peace rule when we know through experience that the Father God does not abandon those he loves. Joy and peace rule when we know through experience that the Father God does not abandon those who are his own. Let's pray. So, Father God, we dedicate ourselves to you. We acknowledge you are the controller of all that happens on this earth. You are the sovereign God, but you are also a compassionate God. You are a loving God, and you will stand by our side through the most difficult of things, teaching us and guiding us through each step of that hardship. And Lord, I believe it's through that, through the purification and strengthening of the church, that we'll be able to stand as things get more intense against the church. But Lord, I don't look at this with hopelessness. I look at it with you have chosen the church to be your vessel by which you redeem a people of your own. And so I know the church will stand through all of this, and we will stand. All those who come against us will fall and cease to exist. For us, we're not appointed to that wrath. We have the hope that comes from the salvation of God. So speak to our hearts now. Renew our strength so that we can stand. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to take this time to prepare our hearts for communion. We do that through this song. I just want to invite you to stand and sing and receive these lyrics with us.
Matthew 16, 24 says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple or follower must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Even there, Jesus is projecting that life with him doesn't mean that it all is easy and simple. There's adversity. I mean, even in his death, that cross was violent. But he says to us, in following him, we'll be able to get through those violent things with victory. And this communion time is an opportunity for us to remember exactly what he went through on our behalf. That's part of how we join him in that journey is by not forgetting the grace we've received. So take a moment now of praying gratefulness to Jesus for the suffering he took on on our behalf so that we can find strength in ours. Thank you, Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, sitting with the betrayer himself, grieving that very moment as well, Jesus took the bread, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Take this in remembrance of him. We do so together now. And then he said the unthinkable. He held up the cup that was filled with fruit of the vine. And he said to them, this is my blood, which is a new covenant shed for you. All sacrifices prior to that were all temporal. But this one, this one was different because it was going to have the capacity to cover sins past, present, future. Reflecting the fact that the one who's taking on this death has always been, is, and will always be. We take of his blood, knowing that it's only by that blood we find redemption of sins. Let's take together. Jesus, <laughs> By the power of your blood, we could then know that you have made us firstborns, both men and women, firstborns in your sight, making us children that you love on, you care for, and that you are making a home for us that we can enjoy eternity with you. But in the meantime, you walk with us as a father to a child, caring for us, guiding us, giving us strength through adversity because you're raising up a church that it will be victorious. I pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's end with singing out our need for that sacrifice and that communion.
like to pray with somebody, we'll have people in the encounter room, which is to my left, your right. We'll have people up front. We'd love to invite you to be a part of that. We're going to close with these words from James 2 as we participate in the sufferings of Christ. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Church, I pray that this week you would be made mature and complete, not lacking anything that you need for the trials of this week. To go in peace, you are dismissed. <laughs>